You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Today we're going to be hearing from Dr. John Gutowski, who's written on the idea of proto-festivals and how they emerge in communities around folklore topics such as monsters or colorful historical events or characters within a community. The discussion basically has two parts to it. The first part is the discussion of the particular legend which is at the center of his doctoral research, that is, the giant turtle alleged to live in a lake in Cherubusco, Indiana. Following that story, we'll be digging deeper into the idea of proto-festivals and discuss several examples built around monsters. As we release this episode, the 2022 Mothman Festival of Point Pleasant is just two weeks away. Bishopville's Lizard Man Stomp returned this past June, Willow Creek's Bigfoot Days was held in July, as was Roswell's UFO Festival. There are many of these kind of events, and John will talk about how folklore and community work together to create cultural identity. 
You'll have to imagine your own parades and funnel cake, but if you live in the United States and look around, there's a very good chance that there's a festival like this in driving distance to where you are now. So, let's get to the... Monster Dog. Uh, maybe let's start by introducing you. Today we're talking to Dr. John Gutowski. I am currently a professor of anthropology and English at St. Xavier University in Chicago, where I teach courses in mythology, in folklore, in linguistics, and in English. I've been there. I've been there since 1989, I believe. And I started there as dean of the uh, College of Arts and Sciences. And I did that for a while at a time when St. Xavier's, the kind of small college, about 3,000 students, and they were becoming a university. And so they needed to do something about their, what was called their School of Arts and Sciences. And so they wanted to bring me in because I had some experiences in academic administration. And so I, I was their first founding dean in um, the 1990s. I did that for about three years, and I realized what a wonderful place it was and uh, how much fun it was to teach there. And so I decided to become a faculty member. And so I've been a faculty member for almost close to 20 years now at St. Xavier, where I'm teaching those kinds of courses in anthropology, in folklore, and in English. But how did I get interested in monsters is probably what you want to know. As a graduate student at Indiana University at the Folklore Institute, which is like world famous Folklore Institute, they train folklorists from all over the world. They come to Indiana University to learn about folklore. Uh, and it's been that way since the beginning of time. So I'm at the end of my career as a graduate student and I'm getting you know, one of the cushy jobs of the, uh, you know, uh, becoming a, a TA for certain courses that the big shots are teaching. And at that particular moment, near the end of my Indiana career, Indiana and Purdue University collaborated on a new branch of both of their schools in Fort Wayne, Indiana, called the IUPUI Branch Campus in Fort Wayne. They were just opening the Fort Wayne Branch Campus, and the chairman of the folklore department came to me and says, you know, you're opening this branch of uh, our university in Fort Wayne. It's never been done before, and uh, they want a folklore course. And, of course, none of the big shots who are getting paid big money, you know, would be willing to drive 175 miles to, from Bloomington to Fort Wayne. So they picked on a willing, eager, uh, innocent graduate student, and I agreed to do this, okay? So for 15 weeks, I drove 175 miles up to Fort Wayne to teach a folklore class, my own folklore. I never had that chance before, so it was a, it was a thrill for me. In the course of teaching this course in Fort Wayne, Indiana, Northeastern Indiana, uh, I'm explaining a, an assignment to my students. They're all going to have to go out and do research on a folk, a local folk tradition. Well, it could be a, a, a joke, it could be a story, a myth, or a legend, custom, or a belief that is uh, commonly circulating among ordinary people in a given community. And as I'm explaining the nature of doing uh, folklore research, field research, asking questions, recording questions. One of my students raises a hand and says, 
You know, I, I was wondering about this because the other day I passed through this town called Cherubusco, 15 miles north of, of, of Fort Wayne. And I stopped in the bar and everybody in that bar was talking about this turtle. <laughs> and it's this big monster turtle. And I didn't know what the what in the world they were doing. And I didn't know. I was thinking about this class we were taking. Were they were they taught relating legends or were they myths or were they jokes or were they? And it was all those things. And I was like totally lost and confused. Is that something I could do a research project on? And I said, oh, my God, of course you could do a research project on that. He went out and did an excellent research project. But it got me thinking. Right then and there, it's a student got me thinking about, hey, what's going on in this town down the road where people are joking and talking? Well, they're serious. Sometimes they're serious. Sometimes they're not so serious. So I took a trip one one day um, before class. I went a couple hours early and stopped in at Charbusco, Indiana, and found out, oh yeah, they tell stories. They all, everybody in this town tells stories. About the monster turtle. <laughs> the monster turtle. Oh, yeah, the monster turtle. We celebrate our monster turtle every year. We've been doing it since 1950. Uh, they're doing it to this day. Wow. Right? They've been doing it. Uh, I, mean, I think my one year, maybe, they had some reason they, uh, they had to cancel it. But uninterrupted to this day, 1922, there's a Turtle Days Festival. A festival why are you having a festival honoring a turtle? That doesn't sound like a, yeah, but it wasn't any ordinary turtle. It was a monster turtle. And we tried to capture it. And we in our community, we tried to capture it. And guess what? We failed. We never did. We never captured that gigantic turtle. It was, well, yeah. Gigantic turtle? How gigantic? And here's where we start getting into folklore right yeah uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how big was that turtle it's a common question everybody has how big they debated the it's debated and talked but to this day right how big was that turtle and the answer i'd say i get from maybe 90 percent of the people i'm going to wind up spending an entire summer interviewing people there uh for my doctoral dissertation because it's just too good to be true how big was that turtle Oh, its shell was as big as an old-fashioned dining room table. Wow. <laughs> That's how big it was. Well, isn't that a great Wow. A great, and that's the traditional description of it. It is. Its shell was as big as an old-fashioned dining room table. And so you have to ask, well, how big was an old-fashioned dining room table? Oh, about yes. six feet long, maybe. This is commonly believed. Oh, say six, seven feet long, maybe five, six feet wide. That's an old-fashioned dining room table. And they don't make turtles in Indiana that big. They make sea turtles. You know, you could go to Florida and find sea turtles, and you can import them, which they did in Charabusco, as they were trying to capture their, their, their own turtle. The shell was as big as an old-fashioned dining room table. Okay, yeah. A quick turtle insert. There are land turtles and there are sea turtles. 
and there are turtles that move between land and water, but primarily in the fresh water. When John quoted statistics on the sea turtle size, I was surprised because somehow I hadn't realized how big some of these sea turtles can get. Leatherback turtles range from between 500 and 2,000 pounds, and their length can indeed be up to 6 feet, or, as the people of Charbusco might say, the size of an old-fashioned dining room table. Of the freshwater turtles in America, like the kind in the lake at Cherubusco, the largest candidate would be an alligator snapping turtle. And, as John says, the biggest of those would be about 2 feet long, and they can weigh up to 200 pounds. That's an incredibly large turtle with an incredibly mean bite, but you would need very tiny place settings indeed to consider that suitable size for a dinner table. If it is that big, maybe if we brought in a sea turtle that's that big, maybe a female sea turtle at that. We're going to bring in a sea female sea turtle, which they did during the time of the great turtle hunt. The time when Cherubusco acquired its identity, its claim to fame. Uh, where the, uh, we're on the map now. Everybody knows about us because everybody's talking about us because newspapers throughout the world are reporting about the great turtle hunt in Cherubusco. Lowell Thomas is reporting on radio every night to America. <laughs> Here's the latest on the great turtle hunt on Cher in Cherubusco of that creature whose wow. shell was as big as an old-fashioned dining room, room table. No, uh, this, we're this, going to get an, a, a female sea turtle. Why a female sea turtle? You know what the answer, the answer everybody gives? Date, well, to lure it out for dating? Well, its name was Oscar. Oh. The t that's the traditional name of our turtle. It gets it gets very personal and personalized. His name was Oscar. And there are all kinds of traditional explanations for why is it Oscar? Is it named after Oscar Falk, who was a famous early settler of that community? Maybe, because the turtle was swimming in Falk Lake, named after the legendary Oscar Falk. Uh, so maybe that's why it's, it, its name was Oscar. Or some old timers would tell me, no, Oscar, Oscar, that's the name we'd use for any kind of turtle. And so we, I, it's something oh. they never knew, but they, they called turtles Oscars around there. So, uh, so, and then there are a half dozen other explanations for so, who it was named after. But nobody knows for sure. All we know is its name was male, and so they decided to get a female sea, sea turtle. Of course, it never worked. Because the turtle we're talking about couldn't be a sea turtle. We don't get them in North America, right? They're, they come from the south, from the Pacific Ocean, Atlantic Ocean, southern climates, and so forth. They grow to be very large. Uh, they have flippers instead of claws. They're entirely different kind of species. We're talking about a snapping turtle. A snapping turtle, mm -hmm. the, the largest ones on record are probably closer to maybe two feet long, not six feet long, uh, closer to maybe 150 pounds, not maybe 500, 600. <laughs> That's what we're talking about generally. That's the monster. But who's going to try to capture it? It starts out with a farmer named Gail Harris, who owns the Folk Lake, who's a farmer on Folk. He just recently arrived in the community to become a farmer because his wife, was a farm girl. He wasn't a farm boy, but he wanted to become a farmer. 
So he bought a farm out on Falk Lake. And he was out there shingling his barn with his minister. This is very important. This is the beginning of the story, right? He's shingling the barn with his minister. And they look out onto the lake and they see something swimming in the lake. And the minister says, what's that? And Gail, Yale Harris, the name of our farmer here, name of our farmer, he says, I don't know, let's go investigate. They get into a rowboat, they start looking around the lake and they find whatever they see. And the minister says, there it is, I see it here on the right side of the boat. And Gail Harris says, no, 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 I see it here on the left side of the boat. It's on both. One saw the head on one side of the boat, the other saw the tail on the other. That's an awful big turtle. This is, by the way, I, I interviewed Gail. Gail Harris is long dead, long passed away. And I had an opportunity to find him and interview him after he had left the community and taken another job uh, because things turned from uh, good to bad to worse for him. But uh, to this, to his dying day, he insisted he saw that turtle. It was out there. And it, how big was it? I asked him. Uh, he didn't say as big as a large, old-fashioned dining room table, but he talked about <laughs> what he saw, which is interesting. What I saw, and I saw part of him on one side of a rowboat and uh, uh, the hind part on the other side of the rowboat. That's yeah, an awful big turtle. And eventually I had to say, well, would you say, as the townsfolk say, it is an old-fashioned dining room table? He said, yeah, that's about right, he said. <laughs> said you know, when they say old-fashioned, they say like six feet long. He said, oh, maybe even a little bit bigger. <laughs> I think so, so turtles and fish have that in common, that they're bigger when you don't catch them. That's yeah, oh, exactly. for sure. <laughs> yeah, the one that got away. Yeah. So he started, he started for about one week, by the way, with his Nazarene Christian minister. Gail Harris is a Nazarene Christian. And everybody, when they would tell me, when they would uh, tell me their story about turtle days or their involvement with the turtle hunt, they would say, Gail Harris said he saw it, that he saw it, because he's a Nazarene Christian. And everybody in town, uh -huh. Nazarene Christians do not drink, they do not smoke, and above all, they do not lie. And so if he said so, it's got to be true. Wow. Okay. So he managed to convince about seven or eight other farmers for one week to go out trying to find that turtle. And it didn't work until the Rotary Club found out about it. And the Rotary Club started sending more people out to the lake to help find this turtle because they believed a very respectable, respectful citizen of their, of their community was a very religious man. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. While this was happening, somebody went to the uh, neighboring rival, rival town, the county seat of Whitley County, and the Whitley County courtroom, uh, courthouse, and to pay taxes or something, I forget, and reported on what was going on in Cherubusco, Indiana, what these crazy farmers were doing in, in, in Cherubusco, Indiana. And 
when he reported there happened to be somebody there who worked with the UPI, one of those press uh, press organizations, said, hey, this sounds good. And he put it on the wire and it got picked up in Fort Wayne. And the Fort Wayne newspaper ran the first story. This is within, within one week of spotting the eternal. It was in the Fort Wayne newspaper. Uh, once it was in the Fort Wayne newspaper, it was in the Cincinnati newspapers and Chicago newspaper. It started because it was... Uh, 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 it was on the UPI line, right? So everybody got, had access to it. Everybody was reporting the story of the turtle hunt in Charabasco. And as a result, the crowd started to come. The newspapers continue to report. Lowell Thomas in Chicago, he read it in the newspaper. He said, I got to find out about it. He starts calling in to Charabasco. What's the latest on your turtle hunt? Have you found it yet? And so forth. So within a matter of a couple of weeks, thousands of people have descended on Folk Lake. Thousands of people are trying to spot it, to help out, to do whatever they can. And this is something that's going to go on for a period of close to six months. With six months mm. of constant uh, activity at Folk Lake. Constant activity means, well, we haven't, we haven't found it yet. Let's get a female deep sea turtle. Well, didn't work. That didn't work. So they roasted it and and, and, and they sold it at the local restaurant, the deep deep sea turtle. They brought what? in deep sea divers <laughs> from Fort Wayne. They brought in airplanes. They brought in helicopters. They tried every kind of and everything. This was a new news story. Every week there was a new news story about what they were trying to do to capture Oscar. These events take place in 1949, starting in March, and we get to mm -hmm. when we get to November of that year, nothing is working. They haven't found, and then people are starting in the community and elsewhere, and the newspapers, in the media, are starting to ask questions about the farmer, about the farmer who spent all of his time hunting the turtle, because he knows it's there, not tending to his crops. His crops fail. He's got a total disaster <laughs> on his hands, so he starts charging admission for people to come onto the lake. That's just to make things, make living, right? And mm -hmm. so then they start saying, wait a minute. Maybe he's made up this whole story. Maybe he's a confidence man. People start accusing the, the farmer, the good Nazarene Christian, of being a liar. And the point comes where he says, if I have to drain that lake dry to prove you that I'm telling the truth, I'll do that, just that. And come November, the accusations continue. He said, that's it. I've had it. I'm draining the lake dry. Seven-acre lake. Seven-acre lake. By now, there are people from Fort Wayne from all over who are totally into it. They're trying to help out. They're bringing in tractors. They're bringing in pipes that are needed. Uh, to put the pipes into the water, run the tractors, and uh, drain the lake to spill off the water from the lake into a drainage ditch to get the water out of the lake. And so they wound up, I'd say, oh, something like 30 days and 30 nights. They're pumping round the clock. They get that seven-acre lake down to a puddle, maybe the size of your living room. 
right? They need one more night of pumping, and they think they're going to find that turtle right at the bottom of that lake, you know, burrowing himself deep into that lake. Right then and there, by the way, this, this is all historically verified, <laughs> but I'm telling you right now, there's no question, these, these things happen. At that mm -hmm. moment, Gail Harris suffered an attack of appendicitis. Oh, no. Rushed to the hospital. Oh. While he was in the hospital, there was a torrential downpour that caused the dams that they made to contain the water that was being siphoned off. They busted and the lake filled back up. So by December, by December of 1949, Gail Harris said, the search is over. I'm sorry, I can't continue. It's all over. I'm finished. The next year, that farm was up for auction. Sur search ended due to turtle rental rains. Yeah. <laughs> turtle wins, right? Turtle wow. wins. That could have been the end of the story. But the following year, in 1950, tried by a Charbusco population 1,500. Small town. Main Street, America, right? The Boy Scouts were meeting above the fire station. And... The volunteer fire department had to expand itself. They needed that room. Boy Scouts lost their meeting place. And so the community got together. And it was a special Rotary Club meeting where the president of the Rotary Club, who was also the editor of the newspaper, became a good friend of mine. We got to do something about building a new Boy Scout house. Where are you going to get the funds? We're going to raise it. How are we going to raise it? turtle days. We're going to celebrate what put our town on the map. That turtle put our town mm -hmm. on the map that brought people, that brought interest, that gave us our identity. Let's exploit it. Motion passed unanimously. We're now going to fund turtle days in order to build a new Boy Scout house. And they did it in one year. They have a new Boy Scout house. They're very proud of that Boy Scout house built with Turtle Day funds, right? And it's still, to this day, Turtle Days raises money in lots of different ways to fund all sorts of uh, uh, community community improvements. Well, I was going to ask, you you call this a proto-festival. Yeah. What do you mean by proto-festival, and how is it different from just a festival? I think I coined that term. I don't know that it's, it's been widely accepted, but I wanted to make the distinction between there are festivals all over this country, right? It's particularly in small towns. Small towns, large towns, everybody has has summertime festivals usually. Um, mm -hmm. They involve music, they involve carnivals, they involve dancing, singing, they involve uh, a raffle, they involve uh, uh, buying tickets for a raffle. Uh, a queen, a, pet, a beauty pageant, queen contest. Churubusco has a queen contest where they where they choose a turtle queen, and you choose your turtle queen in Churubusco every year by the female who sells the most tickets to the raffle for Turtle Days. Right. Uh, so lots of things are going on um, at at uh, at Turtle Days. And at these festivals all over the world that are done for what purpose? Why do we have festivals, particularly in small towns, most typically a small town 
phenomenon, right? A mainstream America, right? And every town has one. And if everyone, every town that has one, has one that's related to what are we proud of in our town? What put our town on the map? What is our claim to fame? And Cherubusco, the answer began in 1950, where there's only one answer to that question. It's the turtle, right? And so we're going to have turtle days, and we're going to be called Turtle Town. We're not going to change the name of our town. We're named, we're named after a suburb of Mexico City, by the way, Cherubusco, Mexico. That's how the town got its name. There's all kinds of community folklore about all kinds of things in this mm. in, in this town. And uh, back a hundred or so years ago, maybe my more like 150 years ago, they had a town meeting to decide, okay, what are we going to call that place? We've got two rival groups. One say we should have this name, one should say the other name. And in the middle of this town meeting, somebody came running in and said, the, Me the Americans have just won the war with Mexico. They defeated the Mexican army at the Battle of Churubusco. <laughs> well, if that's the case, that's what we're going to call our town. And that's what it is to say. And so they have connections with Churubusco, Mexico, to this day, as a result of that. It's kind of interesting. Oh, interesting. oh, oh, oh. So the Beast of Busco is really short for the the Beast of Churubusco. Got it. Got it. Churubusco. Yeah. Oh. Be right? nice alliterative, right? Uh, yep. mm -hmm. Alliterative name. It works real well. Yes. Rolls off the tongue. Uh, mm -hmm. Every town has one of these events in the summertime that's a community celebration that's in somehow or other connected with their town's identity, their town's claim right. to fame, right? And what's so amazing, and sometimes the claim to fame is a product that the town uh, is responsible for, uh, uh, something that they grow. It could be corn, it could be potatoes. So you have corn festivals, potato festivals, peach festivals, plum, all that kind of thing, you know, all kinds of uh, fruits and, and, and crops and so forth. Or it could be some kind of machinery, harvest festival. Tractor festival. So these these uh, proto festivals, then they're not always about mythical animals. Exactly, exactly. Sometimes they're about people. A lot of festivals in small towns are about us, mm -hmm. our ancestors, Old Settlers Day. Pilgrims oh yeah, Day. Yeah, 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 yeah. You find these all mm -hmm. over the place. Say goodbye your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. 
Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. And then you have you have the festival, and there are lots of them all over the country about animals. And not only ordinary animals, but special animals, mythical animals, monster right. animals. They're all over mm-hmm. the place, right? And so that's where I said, now, when you start paying attention to these animal-based festivals where communities derive their identity from an animal and not necessarily a friendly animal, an animal that caused damage, that hurt us, that we hunted, that we tried to capture, and so forth. Uh, And as a result of trying to capture a dangerous monster-like animal, people paid attention to us. Tourism increased. People started eating in our restaurants, sleeping in our hotels or motels, and and, and whenever. It was these festivals are good for business, particularly when they're connected with a a claim that you make about what put your town on the map, what you're famous for, what is your source of identity. Cherubusco, it happens to be a turtle. In Rhinelander, Wisconsin, it's a hodag. A hodag? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an animal. What's a hodag? In Rhinelander, we said they have a hodag fest, annual hodag festival, Rhinelander, Wisconsin. We'll need to do a longer segment on the hodag and on the jackalope because there's some really interesting story here. I'll put links in the show notes for now because the original hoax construction for the hodag still exists and it's quite interesting to look at. And the jackalope has the peculiar distinction of being both a manufactured bit of creative taxidermy. Yet it also has this really interesting real-world analog in the form of a kind of uh, tumor that can form on hares and rabbits, and it does kind of resemble antlers. We'll return to both of those topics and several others that are discussed in this episode in future Monster Talks. And it turned out to be a hoax. Somebody invented this. It didn't matter. They invented it, and people started coming in and finding out, is it real? Can we capture it? What is it? And so forth. They've been doing that for years. Rhinelander, Wisconsin. They've been doing that at Rhinelander, Wisconsin. They've been doing that at, uh, there's a town in West Virginia that holds an annual Mothman Festival. Mm-hmm. Right. Go to Mothman Festival. You have, uh, uh, then there's another one in uh, in South Carolina that's actually moderate. That's a fairly recent one. It's just getting started. It is, but it's based on the local legend, right? About this this strange creature. Let's not call it an animal. Is, is it the right? lizard man? Lizard man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. lizard man in South Carolina. <laughs> right? And when they they just started that, right? Whether it's going to st- stick as a festival, who knows? But it's a it's a festival in honor of the lizard man and comic books. Uh, why? Because there's a comic book 
publisher as a business selling comic books. He thought up the idea, uh, his idea of to, to sell Lizardman comic books, right? And so you have a Lizardman statue, say there's a Mothman statue in West Virginia. Just you have a turtle statue, a 15-foot turtle statue in Charbonne. When I was there, it wasn't a 15-foot. It was a kind of small statue that people could sit on right at the most important central park of downtown Charbusco. Now there's this gigantic 15-foot statue as you enter the park built with Turtle Day funds where they have most of the ceremonies related related to Turtle Days. Um, there's a uh, ice worm festival in Cordova, Alaska. Ice worm mm -hmm. festival. Wow. Cordova, Alaska, Icewood. What are I? The, uh, the highlight of this festival, by the way, it's carnival attractions, music, dance, parade. Parade is essential in these festivals. The highlight of the Cordova Ice uh, Iceworm Festival uh, in, in Alaska is the appearance of the 150-foot-long ice worm that they, they wow. made up a. <laughs> whatever paper machine or whatever it's a gigantic ice cream and based upon the reporting back close to 100 years ago uh when they were trying to promote tourism in alaska well we do everything on a large scale on a big big everything is big everything is great and there's our ice worms that are you know hundreds of feet long and so forth and it became it became like a joke it was a joke some of these Animals are related to jokes. Some of them are related to hoaxes, and some of these are related to things that really happen. Charabusco is things that really happen, but things that really happened in Charabusco are are more fantastic than the hoaxes. <laughs> I mean, and hoaxes show up as well, right? But things are really happening in Charabusco. That's probably why the tradition is so strong. What do you think makes a, a, a proto festival successful? Sometimes it's belief, but sometimes some of these festivals start with a hoax. Some of these start with an idea. Somebody wants to make some money. Somebody wants to, I think it was a taxidermist in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, who made up a hoedag. And once they sell it, well, we got to get a story to go along with it. Oh, we got a story to go along with it. And then we got to, uh, we got to say about, oh, it's a dangerous, it, it attacked somebody. And then legends develop. And then some people believe in the legends and other people don't, right? But there's <laughs> same, maybe a degree of belief, probably, that's involved in most of these, that somehow or other this really exists or somehow, somehow or other this is important, one way or the other. That you believe something about what's going to become the source of your identity that you can symbolize, that you can create an image of that you can create a statue of, that you can create special postcards, uh, Odeg postcards, sell big in Ryan Randler, Ice Worm Festival, sell big in Alaska, Jackalope Festivals, sell big. By the way, Jackalope is really a special case because it's all over the country now. There are Jackalope Festivals all over the country, partly just because of the image, right? Uh, I don't know if there's, a, I think there might be one community, uh, one community 
that is the source of the Jacobo. They may or may not have a festival. I'm not sure which it is. I think it might be in Montana or Wyoming or somewhere like that out in, out in the plains. But I think, again, I think that was another case of a taxidermist invented the idea and made money out of it and made money for a hotel, a hotel open featuring a big jackalope statue. Get it? it was, <laughs> and people would come for miles around and tour it increased tourism activity. The important thing is the town it suddenly becomes a hotbed of activity in terms of seeing the monster, uh, catching the monster, trapping the monster, doing whatever the case may be. But somehow or other having some kind of connection. I was there. I was there and I saw it. There really is such a thing as a jackalope in probably about seven or eight different states now. <laughs> you know, growing up in Australia, there's a legend of uh, a thing called the Fisher's Ghost in a town called Campbelltown, which is just on the outskirts of Sydney. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have a festival there to uh, to celebrate this legend. And it goes over a couple of days. And this has been around since about 1956. Uh, so with your research huh? over the years, uh, yeah. So with your research over the years, have you found these proto festivals, these festivals in general, is this a practice that's found across cultures and in lots of other countries? Or is, do you think that this is uh, mostly a, an American thing? I think it's found, it's starting to be found everywhere now. Like I said, Australia, England. but there are differences. There are differences. I, I think it starts out as an American experience and a, mm -hmm. a, a archetypically American expression of American culture. For some odd reason in America, we like to we like to express ourselves in terms of we are number one. <laughs> right? <laughs> we are number one. We're the biggest, we're the best, we're the greatest. And so if our town grows the biggest best popcorn, we're gonna have a popcorn festival <laughs> to celebrate that, you know, to celebrate how American we are. If we have the biggest or best monster turtle that's ever been seen, well, we're gonna celebrate <laughs> that. I swear, you named you named the creature, the uh uh um, which is the what Nantucket, Massachusetts has a Nantucket sea serpent. Oh, I thought we were going to talk about that gentleman from the Limerick. I'm glad we went this direction instead. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're keeping it clean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you could tell us about the sea serpent then. That sea serpent was a total hoax, by the way. And it was a hoax that was manufactured by a guy who makes puppets and who makes puppets out of balloons. And he made, in the end, he started, he planted the legend, he made the balloons, he winds up in the end getting hired in New York by Macy's, and he becomes the guy who originated the Macy's balloons Oh wow! at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, but it all started <laughs> with him making a balloon of a monster sea serpent. And once they started reporting oh, the legend, oh, wow. he, again, 
The media started covering it. The tourists came out. The curiosity seekers came out. All sorts of activity is going on. Can we find it? Can we care? He made footprints and so forth. Uh, it seems inevitable it would blow up. What? <laughs> <laughs> and you know how it does blow up? Eventually, he blows up the balloon and plants it on the seashore, and people come out to see the sea serpent to find out it's only a balloon. Right. Oh. Roswell! Roswell! When John told this story, I had not looked into this case, but I found a terrific article, which I linked to in the show notes, about this monster balloon. And it's quite extraordinary. I can't imagine what it must have been like for locals to show up and see this thing, but monster hunters from New York City might have found it a bit familiar. The giant animal balloon was created by Tony Sarg, a puppeteer and balloon maker who had already contributed to another parade level slash festival type event, the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade. Balloon floats first appeared there in the 1920s, starting with Felix the Cat in 1927. And Tony Sarg was a leading puppeteer and balloon designer. And this 1937 creation was a publicity stunt. But sadly, Targ would pass away just two years later after bankruptcy burst his hopes for financial security because of another burst, his appendix. It's only a balloon, so he exposed <laughs> his own hoax. You're probably well suited to answer this because this you, your your work deals with folklore and anthropology. Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so how how do these proto festivals fit in with the uh, the folklore idea of ascension? And I know a lot of we we've been talking a lot lately about uh, legend tripping. tripping. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was just wondering, like, w- there seems to be like a component of of almost a a pilgrimage. Uh, like for me personally, like I'm, I'm a I'm very interested in Mothman, not as a real animal, but just the cultural impact of this this story and how it's changed over time. And I would love to go to the Mothman Festival, but it's, yeah, it, 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 it feels like it's similar to Ostension, but it's not exactly the same. It, it, Somewhere along the line, in connection with these the, the monsters, the monster uh, uh, proto-festivals, and the monster, there's some kind of legend, there's some kind of story. Somebody plants it, or it's based upon tradition. It's based upon maybe a Native American tradition. It's based upon logo, all kinds of possibilities that somehow or other get transformed. It gets elaborated as people start claiming, hey, this is real. How do I know it's real? Because I saw it. I was out there. I was out mm-hmm. there with a bunch of my buddies. We bought a case of beer, right? We drove out to somewhere to a swamp or somewhere in the middle of the night, and we saw this thing with glowing red eyes and wings and so forth, and it attacked my good friend, and he's got the scars to show show for it. What's going on here is we want to be part of what's happening. That's number one. That's the ostension part, right? That's the dramatization of the legend. We have this absolute need to dramatize these things. And it's also connected with there's a group of college students or there's a group of firefighters or there's a group of somebody, some group of people say, hey, there's a bunch of teenagers that are drunk teenagers that are going to come out here. Let's give them the experience of their life. And they, what they try to do is they reproduce the legend, right? They dress up with a winged outfit. They use special lights in their eyes and so forth so that the kids, when they come, they say, oh, my God, we saw it. So we're kind of dramatizing and, and, and doing an instant replay 
of the things that are only circulating by oral tradition in our communities. Yeah, that's common. It's very common. I just wanted to ask you if you think that these kinds of festivals have changed over time. I know that with COVID, a lot of them were canceled for a year or even longer. Right, uh, yeah, what yeah sometimes things- for a year, and but then they're back again in, in 2020. I've noticed that. So many of these in 2022, we're back. Yes, yes. And what do you see then as the, the future of these proto-festivals? Do you see that they're going to change uh, or get bigger? Or what I, thoughts do you have about that? They get bigger, but there's certain things will never change. You have to have a parade. You have to have a carnival. You know what they call carnival? These little rides and little kind of games of chance and games of skill. And there are companies that are still doing good business, making lots of money, going from town to town, mm-hmm. community to community, uh, for usually a period of three to four days, right? They, length of time, three to four days, uh, parade, queen contest, raffle, uh Exhibition of products, works of art, maybe m- music. Music has become a very important thing. Anything is 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 becoming more evident in these community festivals. There's much more emphasis on music and musical performers. Uh, mm-hmm. You got to have big names. You know, even if you're a small town, see if you can get a big name. Uh, that'll br- that'll bring the people into our festival. Our uh, our claim to fame, our identity may not be enough. So let's bring a big name musician, a big name singer, and so forth. But basically, it's the same concept. It's a, it's a true tradition, right? It's a true American mm-hmm. tradition. So back to your question about how American is this? Other people are doing it, but I think it's I think it starts out as a very characteristic American, maybe not uniquely American, but you know, you can tell the difference. Uh, in terms of the mythical monster animals at the proto-festival part. Proto-festival sometimes ends as a proto-festival and doesn't become a festival. Often they become festival. But compare the famous proto-festival Cherubusco, which when people are talking about it in the community and elsewhere, they say, it's not only our claim to theme, it's our Loch Ness monster. Oh, yeah, Loch Ness. Yeah, someday, one, I was at one, of, one, one particular bull session in a bar one day, and they said, someday Loch Ness is going to have a Loch Ness monster festival. I don't think they have one anywhere in Loch Ness to this day. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, but I do think Inverness yeah. thrives on the money from tourists. They, they yeah, get yeah. money for yeah, it. Yeah. They still do. Yeah. In yeah. fact, Loch Ness is, is an entity in and of itself because it's a it's it's a world phenomenon. It was it's been a world phenomenon mm-hmm. since 1933 when the first sightings occurred in, in Loch Ness, and everybody is flocking out there to see is it real is it true how big is that monster can i take a picture of it can i take a say but then you ask yourself the question what are the people what are the town by the way there aren't too many towns around that's the other factor there are too many communities around like there's a number of tiny smaller than charabusco the communities around the lake and the people there might tell you that they went out and they saw it but the, the history of the Loch Ness monster, in terms of community, is 
sightings. The history of proto festivals in America, Charabusco and all the others, is the community is out there doing something. Yeah, the community is out there uh, is out there chasing or catching or capturing uh, or getting wounded by the monster. There's no local person that I'm aware of that's ever, ever been treated for injuries suffered from a Loch Ness monster bite. <laughs> True. <laughs> but this reminds me of, of of religious festivals in Europe. I mean, it, it's very secular, but like it becomes part of your calendar. You look forward to it every year. Yes, yeah. yes. And uh and it gives you an I guess mm-hmm. a narrative identity. I mean that the these like the community can like Sense of community. Yeah, yeah, it, it, that sense of belonging, that this is the town. I'm from that town mm-hmm. where we have a monster X, you know, where mm-hmm. we have a monster Y. Yes. You know. And what mm-hmm. you think what you think may not be entirely true, and so that's where you can debate, you can discuss, you can add on to somebody's story. Is it true that that farmer, that farmer who first, that farmer, by the way, Gail Harris, is a, I like to think of him as a uniquely American personality that you even find in American literature. He's a Captain Ahab of this community. He's the man who was like totally obsessed with the capture, uh, uh, with the capture of this monster, and he's going to fail just as Ahab is going going to fail. And so there's a there's an Ahab character. There's a Thomas Edison character in this town. Uh, a mechanic in the automobile garage who makes inventions, who makes inventions to help capture the monster. He invents an underwater viewing apparatus, you know, uh, that they use with the headlights of an automobile <laughs> attached mm-hmm. to some kind of system, of course, which is totally useless because the Seven Acre Folk Lake is a muck lake. You can't see a thing in there and it's over which is what the deep sea diver that they brought in found out very quickly you can't see a thing there well bring in the edison guy here who invent something that will help us see the monster no that didn't work he 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 brought in weapons to help wound the monster until the indiana svca said no weapons allowed <laughs> cannot hurt, do not harm this uh, so official even official organizations uh, like nature organizations government organizations they get involved uh it is, there's a white lake monster i think somewhere in arkansas somewhere in arkansas uh People have been trying to capture it since about 1933, about the time that Loch Ness Monster started. Uh, and it's only recently, like in the 1970s, the Arkansas legislature passed a law, a state law, that created a White Lake Monster Refuge. That during, during a, a certain area of the White Lake River, you are not allowed to harm the monster in any way. <laughs> John's referring here to the White River monster of Arkansas, and he's quite correct. Arkansas Senator Robert Harvey led 1973 legislation to create a protected zone on the river adjacent to Jacksonport State Park. We discussed this monster before back in episode 204 with Joe Nickel, who believes that the original monster sighted in the early 20th century was probably a manatee straying out of its normal habitat. Loch Ness 
things are being done usually by outsiders, by tourists, by people who come from Japan, America, U.S. Americans. Boy, we we people have made a for Americans have made a, a fortune <laughs> by going to Loch Ness to try to capture it, to try to film it, to try to prove it, right? Uh, whereas the people who live in those little towns in and around, and not many little towns, they're content with their ordinary lives and they're intent to go out on the lake and look for things. And if they see something, they'll tell you, but they're not, uh, they're not making it a business deal the way Americans, Japanese, Germans, all kinds of other people get involved with, with Loch, Loch Ness. Um, well, that you remind me though that that's the uh, I, when I think of uh, some festivals, I think of them as being around religious prophets like the P R O P H E T. But in America, our, we 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 like our prophets with P R O F I T. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do have a question that we we have only talked to a few folklorists along the you know in the twelve years we've been doing this, but I. What's your sense of how the field of folklore is doing? Are you are you getting good crops of new folklorists coming through, or is is or is academia? I feel like academia is struggling right now, and I, I don't. They you know, are. You're they in are. it. Some programs, some programs are disappearing. There aren't many universities that train folklorists to begin with. Uh, Indiana is the major one in America. University of Pennsylvania, I think, had one. That one it was the second best. I think they, uh, uh, it's 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 either it's. I'm not sure of its status right now. Harvard University has a very minuscule folklore program, just a couple of courses. UCLA has a has a fairly decent uh, big, big program, but that's that's about it. There's a. Uh, every now and then you find a university that has a maybe a master's program in folklore studies. But as far as having doctoral program, Ph.D. program, very few places. Indiana is still the number one spot where they train folklorists all over the world. When I was a student there, I was one of the few Americans studying folklore there. People were coming. This is how I was a student there in the 1960s. So I go back quite a ways. Right. They were there from Africa, they were from, from Africa, from every other country that had just obtained independence, right, or recently obtained independence, what's one of the first things you do? Get somebody who knows something about folklore, about what are our national traditions, what is our national identity, and so forth, and they would send people, where do you send them to, to get educated about this? Indiana University. So they're, they're still profiting from that, 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 uh, that tradition, but from South American countries, they were all there from all over the world, uh, and so forth. So yeah, it, it is changing, and it is not as important. As far as where you can learn about it in, in your own university, let's say if it's a state university, I would say chances are that uh, there might be one or two, most universities, one or two courses are offered. And they're offered either in the anthropology department or the English department. If they're in the English department, they're usually offered by somebody who knows something about folk songs and ballads, mm, mm -hmm. because folk songs and ballads are more like poetry. Right, get it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so that's why English English has a long tradition of of of, of being the, the 
the home of folklore studies, starting with Harvard University. Some of the early great folklorists came out of Harvard University. In fact, the American university system was developed as a result of Harvard University deciding at one point, at one point in their career, you know what we you know what we're doing here in America? This is in the 18th century or 19th century. We're training ministers. We're divinities. They were divinity. Most of the Ivy League schools started out as divinity schools, training ministers. So you took courses in the Bible, in Greek, Latin, and the Bible, and that was about it. And something's got to change. We've got to join the modern world. Harvard was one of the first. Uh, George Washington was one of the second. And all the other Ivy League places filed in suit. we got to become like the universities in Germany. They study science. They study sociology, psychology. They do all kinds of things are part of university education. We want to do that here in America, but we're bogged down with being divinity schools. So what, what they did was they sent their top scholar from Harvard, who happened to be a folklorist, Sir James, Ch James Child, who is the author of a five-volume work called The Child Ballads, where he has classified and it's a big scholarly resource for studying the ballad to this day. It's the, the ultimate scholarly resource. They say, he says, child, we're sending you to Berlin and we're sending you to Berlin to find out how German universities work. We're sending you to study at the feet of the Brothers Grimm, the great folklorists mm. of the Grimm fairy tales and so yeah. forth. They were folklorists, but they were historians, they were scientists, they were linguists, they, were, they did all kinds of things, and they were serious scholars. And actually, one year in Germany comes back, Harvard changed overnight, and all of a sudden they're offering biology, chemistry, physics, mathematics, all kinds of things that were unheard of as the proper education for our minister. Right? Changed, us, changed us forever, right? But folklore, so folklore is part of yeah. important changes in American universities to begin with. But today, I think it's it's declining so that you'll find the one or two folklore courses either in the English department or the anthropology department. And that's why um, I started as dean at St. Xavier University for three years. And when I decided I want to become a faculty member, uh, and my field is folklore. Yeah, where are we going to put you? <laughs> they said, where are we going to put me? Yeah, <laughs> we have no folklore department. No, uh, we have an English department. And guess what? I have a dual appointment in English and in anthropology. <laughs> and that's related to the fact mm -hmm. that some of the folklore, the folklore courses I teach are cross-listed in anthropology and in English. Some do that and some don't. We do it here at St. We do more in anthropology than most other places. So I do folklore, mythology uh, courses in uh, the millennium. The world's coming to an end. Oh, yeah. How do you know? Well, it's because what's going on in Mexico and so forth, all connected with oral tradition and so forth. So I do lots of folklore courses, a general folklore and then specific folklore courses out of anthropology at, uh, at St. Xavier. But yeah, it's changed. It's changed, and it's uh, yeah, it's yeah. It, it's never going to be 
the number one major <laughs> at any university. Right. Uh, we should probably try to wrap up the interview uh, at, at this point. And we've got a final question that we like to ask uh, all of our guests, and that is, what's your favorite monster? You need to ask that question. <laughs> it, it, it's got, well, I've got a it's feeling, got feeling I know what Oscar, you're going to Oscar say. Oscar but... Beast of Busco, who could be the reincarnation of Chief Little Turtle. Chief Little Turtle was one of the famous American Indian chiefs. Might have been born and raised in and around Charabusco. There are local traditions about this famous uh, Miami Indian chief who was responsible for the defeat, defeat of three different European generals, but don't doesn't get talked about much because in the end, after he saw the handwriting on the wall, he started to collaborate with the American authorities and says, you know what, we got to adjust to the new world that's coming in. And so he lost his, his his stature, but he's like one of the great historic figures of, of Native America. Uh, some people in Cherubusco say, yeah, our monster turtle is the reincarnation of Chief Little Turtle. And so there are so many things. I'm, I'm only scratched the surface of the kinds of traditions that are going on, the traditions, the jokes, the tall tales. Charabusco has some of the world's probably greatest tall tale tellers. How big was that? Let me tell you how big it is. Let me tell you about the time when they tried to, when they did capture the turtle. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I can't tell you how many of these tall tales I was a sucker for when I started. I spent a whole summer <laughs> interviewing people and doing research. I lived in the town for, for one whole summer so I could get close to the people to interview them about their about their stories. Um, I would thank you very much. Um, and I, I kind of want to make a joke about the giant turtle festival and the jackalope festival having a race to see who can be the, the best. <laughs> 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 yeah. But maybe we'll get to talk to you again because uh, you are a fountain of information and we really appreciate it. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Dr. John Gutowski discussing the legendary giant turtle of Cherubusco, Indiana, and how recurring festivals help create a sense of community identity, as well as preserving and embellishing the monster stories often at the heart of such events. Check the show notes to links to John's research, as well as to other festivals and creatures discussed within this episode. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network home of such shows as Investing for Beginners My History Can Beat Up Your Politics and Food with Mark Bittman If you'd like to advertise on this show contact sales at advertisecast.com We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk Each episode we strive to bring you the very best in monster related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation if you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. 
We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk's theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for making Monster Talk part of your listening life. been a monster house presentation say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.